This is episode 477 of the AWS podcast, released on October 10th, 2021. G'day everyone, Simon here with a quick pre-podcast message. Episode number 500 of the AWS podcast is coming up. We have a very special episode planned for you with lots of special guests, but we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to contribute some audio to share, maybe your perspective on the podcast, um, how you've used it, etc., we'd love to hear from you. If you visit adibus.amazon.com slash podcast slash podcast, you can see there's a button on that page and it says submit questions and feedback. This lets you upload your own audio to us. So we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note and we'd love to include you in the episode. Keep on building. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Lisher here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined, of course, by Nikki Stone. G'day, Nikki. How you doing? Hi, Simon. Glad to be here, as always. It is good to have you here. We've got some cool things to talk about today, and we've got uh, a little more time to discuss some detail on some of the topics, so we'll do that. But let's start off with the topic of analytics. You can now use Apache Spark, Hive, and Presto on Amazon EMR clusters directly from Amazon SageMaker Studio for large-scale processing and machine learning. So this is really good for accessing your EMR clusters directly from your Studio notebook when you're running petabyte-scale data analytics. And I still find it entertaining to use that phrase as uh, I grew up in the megabyte and kilobyte world. So petabytes are pretty Mm -hmm. amazing that people are just saying, oh, I'll just run my petabyte scale analytics today. Normal, (laughs) casual. Just normal. There's also some some great options here because uh, EMR automatically installs and configures open source frameworks and provides a performance optimized runtime that's compatible with and faster than standard open source. So for example, Spark 3.0 on Amazon EMR is 1.7 times faster than its open source equivalent. So that's pretty cool because you're going way quicker to get your results, which is really what people are all about. So basically, you can spend your time in the SageMaker Studio. You can connect your EMR cluster. You can use Spark SQL, Scala, Python, HiveQL. You can do all your queries, all your management, et cetera. And the clusters can automatically scale up and down based upon the workloads as well. And use Spot and use Graviton to processes to lower costs. It's pretty nifty. Update for Amazon Managed Streaming Service for Apache Kafka, Amazon MSK. It's now version 2.8.1. And what I like about these updates is it's, again, undifferentiated heavy lifting of patching your stuff. And, Nikki, we know that it's important to patch your stuff, but it's also painful. And this way we can just update, exactly, new clusters, existing clusters. Get the latest and greatest. It's nice. Yes, please. (laughs) AWS Data Exchange now supports automatic exports of third-party data updates. So when you subscribe to a third-party data source in in AWS Data Exchange, obviously those can be updated from time to time. In the old days, as in before this announcement, uh, you would manually export your new revision and you might do a pipeline to ingest it. Now you don't have to. Just a few clicks, it will automatically export, put it into an S3 bucket of your choice, and of course you can automate everything on from there as well, which is nice and cool. And finally, in this topic, Amazon Redshift has announced the next generation of Amazon Redshift Query Editor. This is version two, and this is a very cool new way to explore, analyze, and collaborate on your data. And it allows you to easily get access to a web-based SQL editor using your single sign-on provider without having privileges to access the Amazon Redshift console. You can, of course, get it through the console or a direct URL. 
and it gives you a really cool editor to author your queries, user-defined functions, and store procedures that you run on Amazon Redshift. It supports running multiple SQL statements at once and lets you view those results for each statement in separate tabs on the results pane. It also means you can now use session variables and temporary tables, and you can run long-running queries without having to leave your browser window open, and you can get the results later within 24 hours. It's so pretty cool. nifty. Yeah, so I'm excited cool. about this one. Very cool. Moving on to the topic of application integration, another interesting one here. Step Functions has added support for over 200 AWS services with an AWS SDK integration. So this is like really, really interesting because like Step Functions has integrations with about 17 services before this update. And that takes that number to now over 200 services. Now you can just directly Whoa. use the SDK when you define your state machine in ASL using like a really easy to use syntax like service, the name of the operation, and then the input that you're looking to uh, to call. So it, it takes the API actions that you can call from your state machine from 46 to over 9,000. Wow. I think some software engineer is getting a really good performance appraisal this year. <laughs> Most definitely. It's actually a very interesting update because I feel like I can even refactor some of my own previous state machines with just now simple queries. To, you know, you can transform data um, with an SDK call rather than like throwing a Lambda in the middle of your workflow oh, to do something. Yeah. Well, this this is a big change too. And I, I guess it, it shows the evolution of step functions because certainly in my, in my mental model of design, I've been very much uh, an SQS, SNS kind of guy strapping things together that way. But this feels like now I can use step functions as that that intelligent sort of hub of how to coordinate everything. And it gives me all the, the error checking, the retry, the dead letter queue type stuff without me having to write all that boilerplate all the time. That's right. I highly suggest you switch over. Um, I used to do SQS SNS to parallelize lambdas. And ever since I started writing state machines, my world has gotten a lot faster and a lot easier to deal with. <laughs> and how does it scale? Is it good like with parallel jobs and stuff like that? Oh, it's incredibly fast. I, I I beat a lot of people at the same, like they'll run the same logic and I will surpass them in time and performance cool. with my step function state machine. That is very cool. And I guess this also means that as new things get launched and added to the SDK from a service or function perspective, there's not that wait for the integration. It's just there. You just call it. Right. This is great. You don't actually have to wait now for services to integrate with step functions. You can just take advantage of any operation inside the SDK right now inside your step functions template, which is incredible. Very cool. Very cool. And lastly for this topic, Lambda now supports triggering Lambda functions from an SQS queue in a different account. So previously Ooh. you could trigger Lambda functions from SQS queues in the same account only. Now you can create Lambda functions in multiple AWS accounts without needing to replicate the event source in each account. So this one's actually very interesting. So you can basically uh, trigger a Lambda function from your queue in a completely different account, which is amazing. Very powerful. Moving on to the topic of compute. Now, Nikki, I know you're not really someone who spends a lot of time using EC2 because, uh, you know, you've, you, you know that there are easier and better ways. But <laughs> for us old infrastructure folks, um, EC2 is the workhorse of what we do. And there is an update, which is pretty exciting, which is Amazon EC2 now offers global view in the console to view all resources across regions together. 
And this is a big deal if you work in a multi-region world because now you can see it all in the one place rather than switching between it. I jumped into my console the other day when this was released. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so simple but so good. So this capability is currently available for five resources, which is instances, VPCs, subnets, security groups, and volumes, and all regions except the Amazon Web Services, China, Beijing, Ningxia, and the AWS GovCloud regions are supported. That's actually really and cool. It is cool. It's one of those simple but important things, which is great. Another simple but important thing, well, maybe not so simple but definitely important, is would you like to get 34% better price performance for your AWS Lambda functions, Nikki? Duh, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, would you like to do that with no effort on your behalf? Of course. <laughs> How many clicks is it going to take? Exactly. Guess what? Now AWS Lambda functions are powered by AWS Graviton 2 processors. This is now generally available. Now Graviton 2 functions using an ARM-based processor architecture are designed to deliver up to 19% better performance at 20% lower cost for a variety of serverless workloads. Things like web and mobile backends, data, media processing, etc., Lower latency, better performance, this is a cool thing to do. And you can now configure your existing x86-based functions to target the AWS Graviton 2 processors or create new functions using the console API and CloudFormation, the CDK, Lambda Layers. And it will also support targeting x86-based or ARM-based functions using either zip files or container images. This is all kinds of coolness. Wow, that was actually really cool with the layer support too. Mm, I'm I'm really excited about this because a lot of you know depending on what you're writing, like if you if you've written some some custom stuff that really relies upon the uh, the CPU architecture of your Lambda, obviously this is not for you unless you want to write specifically to the Graviton two processor, which is always an option. But I don't know about you, but most of the stuff I write is pretty generic, and yeah. it doesn't really care. So this is this is awesome. Same. I write the same kind of Lambda functions. Yeah, I'm switching. (laughs) Uh, Me too, like today. (laughs) Update for AWS Fargate with Amazon ECS. You can now monitor the system time accuracy for your ECS tasks running on AWS Fargate. Now, this is important for time-sensitive workloads running on Fargate, and it gives customers the ability to monitor the clock error bound, which is used as a proxy for clock error, to know if the difference between reference time and system time exceeds a threshold. Now, this takes advantage of the Amazon Time Sync service to measure clock accuracy and provide the clock error bound for containers. And you can also access it through the task metadata endpoint version 4 in all AWS regions where AWS Fargate is available. There's a really cool blog post on this, but um, the TLDR is clocks are important in your programming (laughs) world. You just didn't realize it. (laughs) And time is hard. Mm, Time is that Well, time zones. Oh, my goodness. Don't get me started. Time is hard. We just went through... uh, a switch to daylight savings time here in Australia. So uh, it's it's throwing everything out. <laughs> yep. Amazon ECR Public adds the ability to launch containers directly to AWS App Runner. So the Amazon Elastic Container Registry, the public version, now lets you run stuff up and quickly straight into the AWS App Runner to quickly test popular web application container images. Now, AWS App Runner one. is a, it is very cool. This is a fully managed service that makes it easy to get up and running and what basically you just click the launch with app runner button and away you go. And so this, I think, really helps you get up and going quickly, especially if you just want to test out, hey, does this container do what it said it would do? Uh, this is a nice way to do it. So awesome. Yeah, I really like this one. I've definitely gone through the ECR public gallery before and then been like, what does this do? And then had to like go set it up, run it yeah. the whole nine yards. Yep. Like, 
And then I don't want this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then I'm like, "Mm, this isn't what I wanted. Dang it. (laughs) Uh, So super cool update. Uh, Moving on to the topic of customer engagement. Amazon SES now supports 2048-bit DKIM keys. So you can now use 2048-bit domain keys, identified mail, also known as DKIM, to enhance your email security. DKIM is an email security standard designed to make sure that an email claims to have come from a specific domain and it was indeed authorized by the owner of that domain. It uses public key cryptography to sign an email with a private key and recipient servers can then use the public key published to a domain's DNS to verify that parts of that email have not been modified during the transit. Up to this point, SES only supported a DKIM key length of 1024-bit, which is the current industry standard, but now you can either choose between 1024 or 2048-bit keys really easily in SES. And moving on to the topic of database, Amazon RDS for PostgreSQL now supports new minor versions, 13.4, 12 8, 11.13, 10.18, 9.6.23, and RDS on Outpost supports new PostgreSQL minor versions 13.4 and 12.8. So those minor versions are all now supported, and looks like this release closes a few security vulnerabilities in PostgreSQL and contains bug fixes and improvements done by the PostgreSQL community. Uh, it also adds support for PostGIS 3.1 and updates the PG logical extension to version 2.4. PostGIS allows you to store, query, analyze geospatial data within a PostgreSQL database. That's actually really cool. Uh, so yeah, those minor uh, versions are now available for Postgres on RDS and RDS on Outpost as well. And uh, lastly for this topic... The general availability of RDS for MySQL and Aurora MySQL databases as a data source for federated querying on Redshift is uh, what's now generally available. So Redshift federated query allows you to incorporate live data from databases as part of your business intelligence and reporting applications. And this uh, you can now add Aurora MySQL and Amazon RDS for MySQL databases in addition to Amazon Aurora, PostgreSQL, and RDS for PostgreSQL databases to your federated queries. So you can now query all of your data at once. So if your data lives in an operational database, or if it lives in a data lake in S3, or if it lives in now any of these RDS databases, you can query all the data at once, which is really nice. Very Federated querying. Very nifty. Moving on to the topic of developer tools, AWS announces the general availability of AWS Cloud Control API. This is a really interesting one. This is a set of common application programming interfaces that's designed to make it easy for you to manage your cloud infrastructure in a consistent manner and also take advantage of the latest AWS capabilities faster. Now, with this launch, you can manage the lifecycle of hundreds of AWS resources and over a dozen third-party resources with five consistent APIs instead of using distinct service-specific APIs. And with this launch, AWS Partner Network APN partners can now automate how the solutions integrate with existing and future AWS features and services through a one-time integration instead of spending weeks of custom development work as new resources become available. Terraform by HashiCorp and Pulumi have integrated the solutions as part of this launch. So basically, you've got cruddle capability. That's right. Create, read, update, delete, and list of AWS and third-party service resources with consistent APIs. And the resources include, is pretty cool, Schema, 
uh, properties and handler permissions and handlers that control API interactions with the underlying services. And basically, it just gives you a uniform method to do it. So for instance, developers can create supported cloud resources using cloud control APIs to do a Lambda function, to do an ECS cluster, or pretty much whatever you want. Plus, you could also use over a dozen third-party solutions that are on the CloudFormation registry as well. So you can imagine this is just going to grow and grow and grow in what it can do. Yeah, that's definitely very powerful. Very interesting update. Uh, moving on to the topic of front-end web and mobile, we've announced the general availability of Amplify Geo for JavaScript, which is really cool. So we had a dev preview release in August, and now it's GA. So Amplify Geo enables front-end developers to quickly add location-aware features to your web applications. This extends uh, you know, the categories that we also have, like auth, data store, and storage. Geo includes a set of abstracted client libraries built on top of the Amazon location service with ready-to-use map UI components, which I think is the Oh, thing. hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that one is the, you had me at ready-to-use. <laughs> jackpot right there. Ready-to-use map UI components. Yeah. And it's based on the popular Map Libra open source library. Uh, yeah. So if you, if you are putting a map somewhere in your web application, I highly recommend you check out the Amplify Geo category. Just, I mean, even if you're just going to use those UI components alone, uh, but now you can also use the location service behind it as well. You know, you can get location markers. You can do a bunch of things with the location service. It's actually pretty cool if you haven't heard about it yet. It launched, I think, last year, right before we went yeah. dev preview. Yeah. And lastly, for this topic, AWS Device Farm has announced support for testing web apps on Microsoft Edge browser. So previously, you could test your web applications on different versions of Chrome, Firefox, and Internet Explorer, and now you can also test on Microsoft Edge. Moving on to the topic of the Internet of Things, Amazon Monotron has launched its iOS app. So this app joins the existing Android app, which gives customers more options for using Amazon Monotron. So iPhone users can use the iOS app to set up their sensors and gateway devices and receive reports on operating behavior and alerts for potential failures. Now, if you don't know what Amazon Monitron is, it's an end-to-end system that uses machine learning to detect abnormal conditions in industrial equipment, which gives customers the ability to implement predictive maintenance and reduce unplanned downtime. It has some pretty cool things like sensors to capture vibration and temperature data from equipment, a gateway device to securely transfer data to AWS, then it analyzes the data for abnormal equipment, conditions using machine learning, and of course, a companion app, which is this one, for setup analytics and alert notifications. So pretty nifty. And AWS IoT Core now makes it optional for customers to send the entire trust chain when provisioning devices using just-in-time provisioning and just-in-time registration. Until now, you had to set, configure your devices to present both the registered CA certificate and the client certificate signed by the registered CA certificate as part of the TLS handshake on device's first connection to IoT Core. Now it is optional, and this makes it easy for customers to migrate brownfield devices to AWS IoT Core. So, for example, moving from a self-managed solution into the AWS solution. Moving on to the topic of machine learning, Amazon SageMaker Jumpstart has introduced a new multimodal financial analysis set of tools. So starting today, you can now access a collection of multimodal financial text analysis tools, including example notebooks, text models, and a solution. 
With this release, you can use the new set of financial analysis tools within Jumpstart to enhance your tabular machine learning workflows with new insights from financial text documents and possibly save you weeks of development time. You can easily retrieve common public financial documents like SEC filings to run tests on to test how well you can gain insights from these financial text documents. You know, you can get features such as summarization, scoring on sentiment, litigiousness, risk, readability. Uh, pretty cool update there for if you, uh, if you deal with financial mm -hmm. text documents. Very powerful. Very powerful indeed. Some updates in the world of management and governance. You can now programmatically manage alternate contacts on AWS accounts. So you can now view and update these details using the AWS command line interface or the SDK, which means you can now programmatically keep your billing operations and security contacts for your accounts up to date. And they always should be up to date. And support for additional account settings will be available in future releases, which is very cool. Amazon Comprehend has added two new trusted advisor checks. If you've never looked in your trusted advisor page, you should because it gives you all kinds of hints about how to be more cost-effective, more performant, more available, et cetera, et cetera. You now have two new checks, the underutilized endpoints, which checks the throughput configuration of your endpoints and generates a warning when they're not actively used for any real-time inference requests, and also your endpoint permissions. It checks the KMS key permissions to make sure you're doing the right thing from a security standpoint. That's really cool. Amazon Managed Service for Prometheus is now generally available with support for Alert Manager and Rules. So Amazon Managed Service for Prometheus is a fully managed Prometheus-compatible monitoring service that makes it easy to monitor an alarm on operational metrics at scale. And as part of this launch, they've introduced additional capabilities such as the Prometheus-compatible Alert Manager, recording rules, and alerting rules. They've also added support for provisioning Amazon Managed Service for Prometheus workspaces, rules configurations, and alert manager configurations with CloudFormation. You can track and audit changes made to your Amazon Managed Service for Prometheus workspace with an expanded set of CloudTrail logs, such as when recording rules are deleted, alert configurations are changed, and lots more. You can also tag your workspaces to help, of course, manage, identify, and organize uh, control access to them. Last topic of the day is storage. This is kind of a cool one. We've announced mm. the AWS Snowcone SSD. Uh, so the Snowcone is now available in solid state drives with 14 terabytes, I did say terabytes, storage capacity. Snowcone is the smallest in the Snow family, and it is the smallest device equipped to handle edge computing, edge storage, and data transfers. The snow cone is now available in both hard disk drive and solid state drive. It has the same motherboard and industrial design as the snow cone with the hard disk drive, but the snow cone solid state drive will enable new data transfer and edge computing use cases that require high throughput performance, stronger vibration resistance operation, expanded durability, increased storage capacity. The solid state drive is 14 terabytes versus the eight terabyte snow cone hard disk drive. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool update. And this is, it's a, it's a nifty little device. In fact, I got my hands on one a little while ago. I was impressed at how small it is. I mean, you got two vCPUs, four gig of memory, 14 terabytes now of SSD and wide networking as well. Wow. So it's pretty cool. And it only weighs four pounds. So uh, uh, in, to the rest of the world, that's uh, less than two kilos. So, so taking you know, it to Antarctica it's, it's, for my next research mission sounds like a good idea. Well, I think that's the way to go. It just fits, <laughs> fits right in your backpack. <laughs> Done. Excellent. Nikki, how do people reach out and get in touch with you? 
So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is knee, like your knee, and a key 23. That's K-N-E-E-K-E-Y 23. Love to hear your feedback from the podcast, as always, or on any of the updates we talked about today. Uh, just love the feedback in general about AWS. Yeah, it's really, really cool to hear from, from, from listeners and customers and just getting that feedback, good or bad. We want to hear about it. If you want to go old school, you can go podcast at amazon.com or also on the podcasting page, you can leave us audio feedback as well if you so choose. Nikki, we'll catch you next time for another update show. <laughs> Sounds good, Simon. Catch you next time. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, keep on building. Episode number 500 of the AWS podcast is coming up. We have a very special episode planned for you with lots of special guests, but we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to contribute some audio to share, maybe your perspective on the podcast, um, how you've used it, etc., we'd love to hear from you. If you visit aws.amazon.com slash podcast slash AWS dash podcast, you can see there's a button on that page and it says submit questions and feedback. This lets you upload your own audio to us. So we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note and we'd love to include you in the episode.